So if you have a copy of God's Word, let's go ahead and open to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Uh, if you haven't been with us, we've been walking through the book of Acts for the last uh, few weeks. And so uh, today we find ourselves in Acts 2. We're going to go all the way through the entire book, chapter 28. So um, I'm excited today because we're looking, we're beginning Peter's sermon at Pentecost. We already began looking at Pentecost last week. Uh, if you see the title behind me, you see the words, uh, we're excited. Um, that may bring back horrific memories of being in English class uh, growing up. It may do that for you. I didn't mind writing papers, but maybe you remember the words, works cited from uh, writing papers. I was talking to Brooke, my wife, uh, who's home with a sick baby right now, but um, when you have four, there's always one that's sick, so that's just part of our lot in life. Um, but I was telling her a couple days ago, I was like, my, my title for my sermon is uh, works cited. I said, works cited. She said, we're excited? I said, no, works cited. She said, oh, okay, like a work site? Like where, where construction's happening? I said, no, no, work cited. And she said, oh, like, like work that's cited? Like you see it, work cited? I'm not making this up. And I was like, oh, my word. <laughs> Do you remember when we used to write papers in school? Like that, works cited. So anyway, uh, I just thought that that was too funny, and she's probably watching right now, and I'm sorry, babe, for saying that. But works cited, if you don't know what that is, you know, if you were, were to write research papers and things back in school or, or whenever, you may have done that. Uh, you do your research for a research paper, and then you write the paper. You have a lot of parenthetical citations. I'm probably saying, like, curse words to some of you guys. You're like, stop talking like that. I don't want to ever have to hear those words again. Uh, but at the end of the, a research paper, you have a works cited page. And what the works cited, it's like a bibliography sort of where you have the, the source material that you use. And it's, it's a way that you show the source material that supports your work. It's a way that you're professor or your teacher knows you're not plagiarizing information, but you're sourcing the information. It's source material that supports your work. Today we're beginning Peter's sermon at Pentecost, and this is sort of what Peter's doing is he's showing, he's sort of citing the work that they're seeing around them. They're seeing God's Spirit work in amazing ways, and so he then begins this sermon to say, there's a lot of confusion here. Let me cite this word. Let me show you the source, the source material being God. Let me show you the true source of all the things that you're witnessing today. And I'm going to suggest to you that when God works, it isn't just so that we would say, wow, although that's certainly the case. It's so that we would be wowed by him, not to, to look and focus on the thing, but to focus on the God who did the thing. It's works that are cited. We want to see the source of these things. And that's exactly what Peter does, the Apostle Peter, as he begins this amazing sermon at Pentecost. We're going to look at the first part of that sermon today, but over the next three weeks, we're going to look at it in its entirety, okay? So Acts chapter 2, verses 13 through 21. I'm going to start in verse 13 because it gives some context. <coughs> Peter says, or Luke tells us, but others mocking said they are filled with new wine. But Peter standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Then the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass 
that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I mentioned that we're looking at the first of three parts of this sermon today. And so the first few verses, 14 through 21, you'll see this indentation. What Peter is doing is he's using a passage from his Bible and our Bible, the Old Testament, his Bible, and it's from Joel. And so he quotes Joel and gives us sort of his his passage. It would be like saying, here's the introduction and here's the passage. And I do this on Sundays after we read the passage which is what's about to happen now, is I give an explanation. Next week, we'll look at Peter's explanation of that passage. And then the next week, he's going to give an application or an invitation, and then we'll see the outcome. So quite literally, we see a a sort of a good model for a sermon that Peter is going to give us, but because it's just so much and so wonderful and so beautiful, I want to take it uh, in three different parts. So today, we'll look at his passage and his introduction, but you really can't even cut up any of it because we're going to have to look at his um, explanation a little bit too. What Peter is saying here is that the God that we all believe in, remember there's a bunch of Jews that are around from all over the place, the God that we all believe in, the God of our ancestors, he promised something. Remember Joel, he's saying he promised something back then, and now he's saying in your presence, I'm telling you, he is fulfilling that thing. Peter's trying to say, don't miss the message. The Messiah has come, repent and believe. You could say that in our passage today and in the next ones to come, there's a promise and a fulfillment. And the promise was that God would pour out his spirit, and the fulfillment, Peter's saying, is that he now has. Last week, I showed you a map, and I think we have that map again with all the people coming together. Yeah, so remember we mentioned this in in the last week's passage about Pentecost. If you go back and skim those uh, verses like 5 through 13, you'll see a whole bunch of regions and, and, and people groups listed. What's happening at Pentecost is that it's, it's the feast of Pentecost. It's about 50 days after the Passover, meaning 50 days after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. And what Peter is doing is he's coming and, and preaching this sermon at a time when Jerusalem would go from about 100,000 people to about a million people, according to documentation from ancient times. So you got a million people in a tiny city. It was a big city, but it wasn't that big. Million people come together, and in, in this passage, you see that they come from Parthia and Media and Mesopotamia and Elam and Arabia and Judea and Pontus, Cappadocia, Pamphylia, all kinds of different places. They're coming together, and by the way, they may speak Aramaic, they may speak Greek, but it says that they're hearing the, the, the mighty works of God in their own dialect, which means you got these band of people, 120 people from Galilee, which is a little tiny city, like a blue-collar roughneck city around Jerusalem, and suddenly they're hearing the mighty works of God as if these Galileans that were not well-spoken and were not trained suddenly talking like they're from Cyrene in Libya, which is just amazing because they will have never even traveled there, and yet they're speaking like they're from that region. It's a miracle. And so we looked at this too last week. Remember that, the, the, put the last steps uh, map up there of, of Jerusalem. So ignore those red lines for now, but just see that this is sort of a, a rough diagram of what the city of Jerusalem would look like. It mentions that they were in the upper room at the end of chapter one, but then in chapter two, it says, and at the end of chapter two, it's going to say that the multitudes and even thousands are going to make a decision to follow Jesus and even be baptized. There's only one place in Jerusalem, in the city, where thousands of people could congregate 
And it's the temple, which you see that big rectangle up there. So what's happening is they go from an upper room, it seems, to a place where a whole bunch of people can get together. And it's really important to understand these are Jewish people, which is why Peter is going to crack open the book of Joel, a book that they would know, and say, hey guys, listen up. Let me give you some context for the confusion that you're experiencing right now. In fact, they were confused, and they even started to mock because verse 13 says they were saying these guys who are speaking in different languages, tongues, it's the word glossa which means languages. They're speaking different languages that the people from all over the world can hear. And these guys say, man, these guys are drunk. Like, what is going on? They're talking all kinds of crazy talk. You ever been around somebody that's severely drunk and they start slurring their words and sounding kind of wacky and crazy? This is kind of what they're doing. They're saying, these guys are gone, man. They are wasted. But what happens is, verse 14, it says, but Peter. And the reason why that's important is because Peter steps into an accusation and says, no, 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 no. This is not drunkenness. This is not confusion. Let me explain to you what is happening. But Peter means that he is responding to their statement. And so it says in verses 14 and 15, by the way, just pause. If you're waiting for like main points or things on the screen, I'm going to give those at the very end, okay? We're just going to kind of walk through the passage today and then we'll arrive somewhere together. 14 and 15 says, but Peter, so in the middle of that accusation, that confusion, standing with the 11, the apostles, lifted up his voice. Now remember, He's addressing thousands and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. That means everybody that's here, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. The third hour would be the third hour after sunlight, which means it's about nine o'clock in the morning. And he's like, I know it's a feast week being Pentecost, but we ain't feasting like that. That's what he's saying. He's like, it's a really early. These people are not drunk. He's just giving some defense there, which is interesting. You know, if if you've heard a phrase that kind of maybe runs parallel to this, in Ephesians 5.18, Paul sort of likens the work of the Spirit that is overwhelming and amazing to drunkenness. It's kind of weird. You're like, what? Uh, Ephesians 5.18 says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, sometimes we focus on that verse and say, "Mm, that says you're not supposed to be drunk. And that's true. The Bible is very clear that drunkenness is a sin. But that's not really what Paul is trying to say in that verse. He does say that, but his focus is not on the negative, it's on the positive. He's saying, don't be drunk on wine that sort of affects and and moves you to to foolishness and debauchery. He's saying, be moved in that way. Be overcome, not by the effects of alcohol, but be overcome by the effects and the presence of the Spirit. So, so again, Paul would say later on, and Peter, I think, would emphasize here, he's like, yeah, there's, a, there's an effect, there's a movement going on, but it's not alcohol-related. It's the Spirit of God-related. So it'd be like, I have this in my notes, so I have to say it. It'd be like, now everybody in the temple getting holy. <laughs> Google it later. Jaquan, tipsy. Forget it, I didn't say that. Okay, so... One thing that I want to identify here is that the effects of the presence of the Spirit are on the move, and it's amazing, and it's powerful what God is doing here. So the Greek word for address, which we just read it just a second ago, verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. The word is translated address there, but back in verse 4, it's translated as the word utterance. And in utterance, that utterance meaning is that it's from the Spirit, what this, what The reason that's important is that the Greek word is saying the same way that those utterances were from the Spirit of God, Peter's address is also from the Spirit of God. Peter's address is God's power speaking through him in the same way that the tongues of fire were the Holy Spirit speaking through his people. 
the reason that's amazing is that Peter does not have a preaching bone in his body, and he's better preach. But it's not under his power. It's under the power of the Holy Spirit. He says here, let this be known to you in verse 14. It's kind of a throwaway phrase, but the word known is really important there. What he's saying is, let this be understood by you. And the reason why that's significant is because right before this, it talked about how they were perplexed. They were confused. They were, they were not understanding. And so Peter slides in and says, let me fill your perplexivity or whatever, your confusion. Let me give you some understanding. He proceeds to preach what they were doing is the opposite of out of control. God is exercising his sovereign plan foretold centuries beforehand, fulfilling a promise from the prophet Joel. Look at verse 16, which is what he says next. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, meaning that God just said this was going to happen a long time ago. Before I read that little excerpt from Joel there, the background of the book of Joel, the prophecy of the minor prophet Joel, is that God is saying that he's going to use, a, use the devastation of a locust swarm as a metaphor for how he will judge Judah if they do not repent. Joel is saying God's going to bring this, this locust storm and, and swarm you and destroy you, Judah. It's a metaphor for what he's saying if they don't repent. And so the message of the prophet Joel is if they do repent, he will relent that judgment. And so it says in Joel that he's going to give them signs that he has relented that judgment, that he's made a way to withdraw his judgment in that time. And a primary sign that God has withdrawn his judgment from a people is that he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. Do you understand what's happening here? You'll see this on the screen behind me, that the arrival of the spirit signifies the arrival of the means through which God's judgment may be avoided. It's not just the spirit showing up. It's Peter saying, God said that he would do this. And in Joel, he was saying, I'm going to do this to show you that I've made a way that my judgment can be avoided. Don't we know that that's the work of Jesus? That God's judgment, God's wrath and his just punishment can be avoided, not by our merit, but by the merit of Jesus who's dying in our place. And so Peter's saying, the fact that the Spirit is coming now should tell you that that way to be saved is also here now. And he gives a, a couple of signs that we see that the Holy Spirit has arrived, and therefore there's a sign. God is doing something. But then later on, he's going to mention a sign of the last days. Sort of two parts here. You guys ever watch boxing or like MMA or something like that when you have timed rounds? And sort of as the time is winding down in the rounds, you got two guys that are, or two ladies that are boxing, you know, and then the time is winding down. What happens when there's about 10 seconds left in the round? Do you know? You kind of hear this clack, like pop, pop, pop. Usually it's either two boards that they're putting together or maybe an electronic sound or somebody slapping the mat. But they do that, pop, pop, pop. And it's a way to show the referee that the round's about to end in 10 seconds, but also that the fighters will understand your time is running out on scoring points. The, or, the arrival of the Spirit is like that pop, pop, pop. It's saying the first sign is here and time is limited. The next thing that happens is the end. And so it's this clack, clack, clack. And that's what Peter is saying, is that the prophet Joel said this is coming. And so the arrival of the end is upon us. That's what he says in verses 17. We'll start in verse 17. He says, and in the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Again, that's Joel. It's a quotation from the book of Joel. The last days. You think, man, it was the last days 2,000 years ago. I think God missed the appointment, Right? No, when it says the last days, it means that the, day, the last days are Pentecost until Jesus' return. In other words, yes, we have been in the last days for 2,000 years because it's the last thing that has to happen before the end. In other words, 
sin into the world. God promised that he would make a way to remedy that problem. The Messiah has come. His saving death is finished and accomplished. The resurrection has taken away death's sting. The last thing that occurs before Christ's return is that the Spirit comes and fills and builds God's church. What's next? The end. So we are in the last things. Joel's prophecy, in other words, is partially being fulfilled in the church, but not completely. We'll continue to look at it. Last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Prophesy means that they're going to talk about God. They're going to, they're going to preach and talk about all the amazing things that God has done. The emphasis here is that all flesh will receive the Spirit of God. Those who believe, everybody, indiscriminately, both genders, any age, any class. That's why he says even servants. He's saying there is no discrimination for those that can repent and believe and receive the Spirit of God. In the Old Testament, and the reason that's radical is because in the Old Testament, only certain prophets and priests and kings at times received the Spirit, and they only received the Spirit of God temporarily. But Peter says, later on in this same sermon, in Acts 2.38, which you can see just a little bit ahead of this, it says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Here it is. And you, no matter who you are, will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of that is he says, people are going to start prophesying. He says that back in, in, or back in verse 6, we see that come to be. In verse 6 it says, and at this sound the multitude came together, so this is the audience, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Speak what? Prophesying. They were preaching and talking about the mighty works of God. But what about visions and dreams, right? Now we're getting into kooky land. What in the world? Visions and dreams? Let's, let's talk about it. Visions and dreams, it says, are going to occur. Well, in the book of Acts, they do. Visions and dreams both occur. Ananias has a vision, and, and it leads him to the conversion of Saul. And he's like, excuse me, God, you want me to do what? To who? And he says, you're going to go talk to Saul. Yeah, the guy, I know his reputation. He's a murderer. You're going to go talk to him. He got saved. And he's like, excuse me? And it's this vision that starts this, and we'll get there. But also in Acts, Cornelius, a Gentile centurion, or a soldier, summons Peter to tell him the gospel through a vision. Peter has a vision on the other side of the fence about Cornelius. The Gentiles would be included. Cornelius and many others believed as a result of that vision. They received the Spirit. They were baptized. And then yet Paul, who has a vision on the Damascus Road, he has a dream later on to go to Macedonia and tell about the gospel. And there are more examples in the, in the book of Acts of the Spirit giving visions and dreams to people. But let's talk a little bit more personally. More personally, uh, I mentioned I can't, I can't talk with specificity, just like I said earlier, but there are things happening in the Middle East that would blow your mind. And I'm not talking about third or fourth hand removed here of some story I heard. I'm talking about a close relationship that I know things are happening in the Middle East that would blow your mind. This person that I keep referring to, and if you want to know who I'm talking about, come talk to me after church when we're not broadcasting. This is a quote. She said, in places where the book, that is the Bible, is not readily available and there is no local presence of believers, we find that the Father speaks to people through dreams and visions a lot. And she's told me stories of this, of people having dreams and visions of God moving. And you think, well, hold on a second. Well, give me an example. Okay, I'll give you an example. There's one example of a, of a woman that, that approached uh, a believer 
and I think it was at a restaurant, and said, uh, hey, I know you don't know me, but I had a dream. I'm supposed to ask you about the son. Who's that? Who's the son? And that's not just hearsay, okay? That's, that's an immediate relationship that, that where there is an absence of all the things that we take for granted, God is working. The things that you think are just, we lack the faith to see with credibility, these things are happening in parts of the world where they didn't get the book. It's not as readily available. The local church is not going because there is perhaps no local church. And so I simply say, the arrival of the Spirit is evident, like the 10-second remaining warning in boxing. Clack, clack, clack. The point is, the fact that the Spirit is made manifest in and through God's people, it means, according to Joel, that the second half of this prophecy is coming, and that's the end. Verses 19 and 20, God continues through Joel's voice and says, And I will show wonders in the heavens above. Now, this is going to sound foreign because I don't think that this has occurred yet. I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Signs, signals, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. Now, I'm not sure if that is literal or symbolic, but the point is, The second part of Joel's prophecy doesn't seem to apply to the early church age. The visions, the dreams, the prophecies, the coming of the Spirit is happening as Peter speaks and as I speak now, while the blood and the fire and the darkness appears to be waiting until it happens during the end times. And I think of this as probably foreshadowed by John in the book of Revelation. Revelation 6, 12 says, when he opened this, this this is the one that was worthy. We sing the song, is he worthy? When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. We could get it caught up in a lot of these details, but I think it kind of deviates us from the point. Peter's emphasis is that part of the sign is here and the second part of the sign is coming, that God will judge the earth. And here's the message he's preaching, repent and believe before he does. That's the message. Repent and believe before the end arrives, because then it's going to be too late. Uh, earlier in our marriage, we've been married for, Brooke and I have been married for 11 years, and earlier in our marriage, just several years ago, I'm, I think it was when we lived in Millport, Sam, where Sam is from. Um, <clears throat> we lived there, and it's a little town, it doesn't have like a Walmart and things, though, so we had to drive a little ways to get to get groceries and things, about 25 minutes or so. And uh, I remember that Brooke would always text me if she was headed back to the house with groceries, and we had Shiloh and maybe one other kid at the time, Zion, but uh, it was just, you know, a lot of screaming and fun in our house, as it is right now, times two, because now we have four. Um, but I remember when we lived in Millport, and what Brooke would always do is she'd always text me whenever she left Walmart to say, like, I'm headed that way and got a car full of groceries and Oftentimes, she even had the kids, so I'd, I'd walk home, perhaps, from the church, which is right next door, or just get off the couch and go and, and help her get the groceries in. And so she would text me and say, I'm leaving Walmart. That was the first sign, okay? The second sign was her opening the door. And so if I got the first sign and didn't respond by getting up off the couch and meeting her at the door when the door was open, she was upset about that. And she, she'd say, for real? Like, I gave you the first sign. It communicated to her, if I ignored the first sign, it communicated that I ignored that. And at the second sign, it was too late. She was unhappy. And I know that's a silly example. But the Spirit in coming, he has signaled the first sign. And guys, if you wait for the next one, it's too late. 
If you wait for the next one, it's too late. God has given you the means through which to avoid the wrath of God, the judgment of God. He sent a sign and said, the Spirit has come. Repent and believe in the gospel. And if we wait, it's too late. When God opens the door, it's too late. He's home. The day of the Lord has arrived. It says it's a great and magnificent day at the end of verse 20, but that can have both positive and negative connotations. It's an amazing day, powerful day. You know what's amazing to me? The damage that a hurricane can bring. It's amazing. You know what else is amazing to me? The birth of a baby. You see, amazing can have a couple of connotations. Magnificent can have a couple of connotations. Great can even have a couple of connotations. And for some, the day of the Lord is going to be an amazing day. And for those that do not believe, it will be an amazing day. Verse 21 continues and says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The day of the Lord, a day of joy or a day of terror. Now, the positive here is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You know what the negative is? The negative is that those who do not will not. It's a silent negative, but there is a negative there. The positive is great. Praise God for the positive. But man, we tremble at the negative. The big point is that the signs of God should cause people to respond by crying out to him in faith and repentance. There's something really cool here in verse 21. Remember when Joel wrote this hundreds of years before Jesus is born, he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord in Joel is referring to Yahweh. It's referring to the God of Israel. He's saying, everyone who calls out to Yahweh, and in the face of judgment and repents of sin, those who call out to Yahweh will be saved from their sin. He will relent. But now, in light of the New Testament, this is not so much about Yahweh. It's literally about the Son. This is about Jesus. It's not just about him, the God of Israel. It is. But it's about the Lord. That's why he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's the very next thing? Stunningly. Peter, speaking to a bunch of Jews, he gets very specific. He says, speaking of the Lord, verse 22 through 24 says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus, do you hear this? Will be blasphemy to Jews. Peter boldly stands up and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Speaking of the Lord, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, you know about Jesus' reputation, He says, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, you crucified, you killed, he was killed by the hands of lawless men, not devout Jews, lawless Jews. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Who is the Lord? Christ. Christ Jesus, the Lord. Not just Yahweh. Jesus. He gives a name and a face. The man that they just crucified. Bold, man. Bold. Jesus just got crucified for preaching that message. And you got Peter preaching it unashamedly. Whoever calls upon the name of Jesus will be saved. That's works cited. I'm going to give you two takeaways in light of that. Number one is that salvation is through him. Salvation is through him, the Lord specifically. 
Jesus. Salvation is through Jesus. Peter's getting very specific about this. He doesn't want to make, make any mistake. Jews, yeah, we could talk about Yahweh. I want to talk to you about Jesus. Everyone who calls upon the name of Jesus, he says, will be saved. He says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. That's not a word that we really use. Pangs means deep anguish. God raised him up, freeing people from the deep anguish of the grave. God's the only way that death's deep anguish is disarmed is through the one who defeated the grave. Everyone in this room faces the unavoidable consequences of our sin. Death. Sin and death connected. And we all have this horrible destination that is barreling down at us. But Jesus has offered to loosen the pangs, the anguish of those wages of sin, which is death. Jesus did that. Notice I say Jesus. The only way to Death's deep anguish is disarmed is through the one who defeated the grave. It's not through law or morals. It's not through being a good person, doing more right than wrong. It's not through your class or your reputation. That's why he says slave and free doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your credential are. That's not the way that you're freed from the consequences of your sin and death. Not family, not values. It doesn't matter if you're from Pamphylia or Phrygia or Libya or anywhere else. There is only one way through which you may be saved. It doesn't matter if you were born in a Christian home. It doesn't matter if your mom and dad were Sunday school teachers. It doesn't matter if you were the pastor's kid. It doesn't matter if you were dunked in water. If you said the magic words, there is one way through which you may avoid the consequences of your sin, and it is only through the Lord. And calling on him and saying, Jesus, save me. Amen. The only way. The only way. So at John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am not a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, totally voiding us of any role in this. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, for by grace you have been saved. You know what grace is? It's unmerited favor. Unmerited. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's a gift. You don't pay for a gift. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. You know who pays for a gift? Not you, the one who gives it to you. Jesus paid it all. You don't earn that. Salvation is only through him. If you've gotten to know me for like more than, I don't know, five minutes, you've probably figured out I'm a bit of a head case. I say that kind of jokingly, but kind of serious. Um, I, I struggle with anxiety. I know that everybody says that, but I got a little bit of, of uh, ground to stand on with this one. Um, I struggled with, and this is kind of weird to hear me say this because I don't think that a lot of men would say this, but it wasn't what you think. I had an eating disorder for several years of my life. Uh, you're like, well, you ain't got that problem now. Good joke. Come on. I can laugh about it clearly, right? No, I really did. I struggled. And I don't mean to make light of this because I know that this is a serious thing that maybe you're struggling with. But um, I struggled with eating anxiety. And that doesn't mean that I was like, trying to lose weight or had body image issues. It wasn't that at all. It was just that I was really freaked out in social situations. And I had a hard time eating in front of people. And you're like, what? That sounds weird. I agree, it sounds weird. And I knew it sounded weird then whenever it was happening to me. But I would. I would uh, have a hard time uh, with this eating anxiety. In fact, it would, it would make it really hard to go on dates. <laughs> it would make it really hard. Imagine that. It's like, how are you going to go? Dinner is what you do, right? Not me. 
I had a hard time going on dates, and so I'd have this feeling of having to earn people's affection. And when you're on a date, you typically want the other person to like you a little bit, right? And so that was hard for me. It was hard for me to go on dates because I didn't like to eat in front of people. Um, I always liked to sit in front of a TV so that I was distracted. I'm not kidding. I I struggled with this. And so uh, if I did, if I forced myself, true story, we got time, true story. I went on a date one time with this girl named Chelsea, and uh, we were at like Chili's or something, and I love Chili's but not around people I don't, okay? And I think I was 20, and uh, we were sitting down, and she orders this big thing, and I ordered like a burger or something, and I was like, nope, not going to eat this, you know? And uh, I took one bite of it, and I was like, that's all, that's all I'm going to be able to eat. And she's like, you're not going to eat your food? You know? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I just eat slow. I'll uh, probably get a to-go box or something, you know, I don't know. Uh, and we finished our dinner. <laughs> I know, right? I'm just a loser. Uh, we, we finished our dinner. I didn't finish mine, but uh, finished our, and she was like, can we get dessert? And I was like, of course, let's get dessert. And so we get this big molten chocolate lava cake thing, and I'm like, not eating that. She's like, no, come on, come on. Just, and I was like, oh my goodness. The thing is, if I broke the rules, and the, the rules are right here, if I broke the rules, I would vomit, like no matter what, if I broke the rules. And so I was like, all right, sure. They gave us two spoons, took a bite, stood up, went to the bathroom, and threw up. Because up here, man, I was so uh, in my own head about this anxiety of eating. And I'm, I'm clearly fine now. <laughs> I'm good now. Um, but there's a reason why I'm, I'm good now. And that is that that illness, it plagued my mind and my body. And it didn't change. You're thinking, when did you stop doing that? It changed when I got married. It changed when Brooke and I got married. And it slowly over time, after we got married, knowing that our bond was not something that I had to earn subconsciously over time, it just sort of dissipated that struggle. I mean, genuinely, I'm thankful for that because it, it really was a bummer. Like, I hated that about myself, but it, I couldn't help it. It was in my mind. But knowing that that bond was irrevocable and I was married and that wasn't a, a relationship that I had to earn, it was, it was there. It sort of dissipated over time. I was just free to just live from the overflow of that permanent relationship. Uh, Now I need to stop eating a little bit, right? The reason I say that is that some of you guys live in in the anxiety of Godward acceptance. And living in this anxiety of feeling like you've got to please and and earn God. Not just please, but, but earn Him and earn his favor, and earn his acceptance. You may not verbalize it that way, but deep down, some of you guys really struggle with that. You struggle with saying, God's favor toward me is is dependent on what I do instead of on what Jesus has done. And so what that manifests itself is joy that is contingent not on the work of Jesus, but joy that's contingent on your religious performance. Or peace that's not contingent on the fact that Jesus has, has ushered that in, but the fact that you say, well, my peace is contingent on a record of rights and wrongs. Do I have reason to have peace because of what I, I mean, have I done well enough? Or hope that's contingent on saying the magic words or really meaning that prayer that time. And then you have doubt and say, how do I know if I'm really a Christian? How do I know if I've really done this? You know, all this comes back to the fact that you feel like you've got to do to have peace in that relationship. And that feeling of having to earn God's affection or not lose it, it hurts your mind and your body and your soul. And just like that anxiety that I just shared with you, that anxiety cripples you. It cripples you. And you worry and you fear and you doubt and you don't have joy because you only have inner anguish, pangs. Guys, if God's acceptance 
had to be earned by us, none of us would be accepted by God. But it was earned for us. It was earned for us, not by us. You're married to Christ. If you're a believer, and you don't have to earn his love and his favor and acceptance because you will never lose it. And so the consequence of that is simply this. Like me and my marriage, feel free to just live from the overflow of that permanent relationship. That's a very specific application of what I said just a moment ago, which is that salvation is through him, not you. It's through him. And if you don't know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that I read just a moment ago, I'd really encourage you to just write that on your heart because it is a precious ointment to the soul of those that are in deep inner anguish. The second thing is that salvation is for everyone. And I'm putting everyone in quotes because that's exactly what it says in verse 21. Salvation is for everyone. That the Savior is greater than our sin. Your sin, my sin, their sin, all of our sin. That everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what it says in verse 21. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It doesn't say everyone who prays a prayer, everyone who walks an aisle. It doesn't say everyone who gets dunked underwater. It says everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And you're thinking, well, isn't that all kind of synonymous? Well, not really. Because in context, in Joel's context, what it meant was turning from sin, calling upon the name of the Lord. It meant turning away from, from a, a pattern and a lifestyle of sin and saying, I'm going to make him Lord. That's what it meant to call upon the name of the Lord. In the book of Joel, God uses this devastation of a locust swarm as a metaphor for how God will judge Judah if they don't repent. It doesn't say everyone who prays a prayer or sings the songs or gets dunked or goes to Sunday school. It's everyone who turns Everyone who makes him Savior, claims him as Savior, but also makes him Lord. Everyone. I don't want you to miss everyone. Because there are people in here, that when I talk about the deep anguish, you feel that. Because you know your past better than anybody around you. You know your mistakes better than anybody around you. You know all the wrongs that you've done better than anybody around you but you don't know them better than God does. No sin is insurmountable. There is no one who has sinned so great that God's grace is not greater. No one in this room is beyond his reach. And I'll just bring to mind once again the passage I preached just a couple of weeks ago, Romans eight thirty three: Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I love that verse, man, because what it's saying is that Satan stands in the fire with you and he's like, man, but oh, what about all that lust and all those lies and all that dishonesty and all those affairs and all those abortions and what about all the things that you've done? What about, what about those college years and what about the waywardness and what about the, the foul language? What about all the, the trashy things that you've done? You know who you really are and God knows who you really are and he brings accusation after accusation after accusation, a charge. It's a courtroom analogy and God's point is it says it's God who justifies. And while Satan accuses, and by the way, for me and for you, Satan has a whole lot of things that he can bring to the table as far as an accusation goes. But I'm telling you, God has more to bring to the table as far as a defense goes because Jesus paid it all. Jesus satisfied all the accusations and said, yeah, I hear the accusations. Yeah, left to themselves, you're right about that, but not because of me. I've covered it. 
Every person in this room needs a defense, and it cannot be your morality. It must be the work of Jesus. Every failure, every sin, please will you join me in coming back to that defense. There's one more thing that I think is really cool about this passage. And to see it, you have to know Peter a little bit. Perhaps the most amazing thing about Peter's sermon at Pentecost is a detail that is very easy to overlook. It's the fact that Peter is preaching. Peter. But also, it's the fact that he's preaching to whom he is preaching. That Peter's the one preaching, and he's preaching to the people that he's preaching to. Guys, before the Spirit of God entered into Peter's heart, Peter could not boldly testify to the high priest's servant girl around a charcoal fire. Peter was a coward. When the rubber hit the road and his master was arrested, what did Peter do? He denied him three times and felt like burying himself alive in the dirt. Apart from God's power, Peter was scum, man. He was an absolute coward. But now, with the Spirit, standing in front of thousands of men, just like the ones that he was cowardly hiding from just 50 days ago, he stands and he boldly testifies. He says, you're going to crucify me with him? Fine. I can't shut up about this. My point is, guys, listen. The Spirit of God changes people. The Spirit of God changes people. He changes us. If God could save and redeem Peter, he can do it for you. If God can save and redeem the coward, he can do it for you. If he can save and redeem the far off, the Paul, Saul who was crucifying the church, if he could save and redeem that, he can save and redeem you. What more excuses are you going to make before you surrender? And if Peter could stand before thousands and testify, you can stand before this body and testify. Because some of you guys have been hiding from that a long time. And in your own strength, you can't do it. But you ain't got to do it on your own strength. Listen to the Spirit. Surrender to Him. And just like Peter, go from being a shell, empty, to being so full and ready to explode with the good news of the gospel. You can't do it, but God can. And perhaps you're here today because he's ready to. So my question to you as we close is, have you called upon the name of the Lord to be saved? If you're willing, he is willing.